Hello and a warm welcome to Econa Day Unplugged on Wednesday, the 20th of October 2021. Terry Sheehan is on the US East Coast, Max Sato's in Victoria, British Columbia, Brian Jackson's in Sydney, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. While by and large, central bankers around the world now seem to accept that the rise in inflation seen so far this year will last longer than originally expected. Most still seem to expect to return to more normal rates in 2022, but the recent sharp jump in energy costs has clearly pulled forward investors' view of prospective monetary tightening. Nonetheless, in some countries, there are increasing signs that higher prices are also hitting economic activity. And for the policymakers, that's going to widen existing splits between the doves and the hawks, complicating the delivery of clear and concise forward guidance and so potentially adding to market volatility. Consequently, with a number of central banks due to make policy announcements over the next few weeks, it could be a bumpy ride. Now, it's not monetary tightening everywhere, and a clear case in point is China, where the economy would seem to be not only slowing, but doing so rather more quickly than expected. So let's kick off with Brian. Okay, then, uh, Mr. Jackson, much weaker than expected third quarter GDP. I guess um, the key question is, was it sort of mainly due to short term issues, you know, assuming supply chains and so forth do get back to normal soon? Or was it more a function of shifts in regulatory policy and the like that could have longer term implications for the economy? Uh, I think it's both. And I think it's also, you know, it, it could be a reflection of, of this long term uh, objective that the Chinese uh, officials have to try and uh, change the, the the growth uh, mix for China over over the long term, uh, yeah, transitioning to a, what they see as a more sustainable long term growth rate uh, built on um, you know a, a different mix of, of factors rather than what they've tended to rely on in the past. Now, right, let me is, let, sorry, let me be rude and interrupt you immediately. Yeah. What so what do you think might be the kind of a you know, the longer term growth rate that they're looking at now? Oh, I mean, they, they don't put a number on it, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we, we're, we're sort of used to eight, nine, sort of uh, even 10 percent year on year growth uh, a, a lot of the time. Um, and, you know, we, we get quite shocked if it's if it's sort of around four or five, six percent. Right. But, uh, you know, obviously those those long uh, those bigger uh, growth rates that we used to uh, see. We're, we're based on a particular economic model, which you know I think they're trying to move away from to something that's more sustainable, more focused on on consumption, less on just sort of building roads and apartment blocks um, whenever you know uh, the, the numbers start to slip. Now, whether they hold their nerve, that's the the other issue. Whether you know they're, they're uh, able to sort of deal with any short-term uh, impact of of seeing those growth numbers slip, uh, that that's the big question. But you know, that's definitely their sort of aspiration to to try and move to a, a different mix for economic growth. Right. OK, obviously, so much of the talk has been around uh, Evergrande in, in recent weeks, particularly in that part of the world. I saw that property prices dropped to what the first time in six years uh, in China in September and what housing activity I think accounts for well, not far off 30 percent of GDP. So, I mean, what's happening sort of the housing market or residential property market now? And you know, how important is that going to be potentially to the likes of what the uh, the central bank does? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that definitely, uh, you know, flows into what I was just saying about how, you know, changing the mix of, of economic growth. They've relied for so long on, um, you know, building these huge apartment towers in, in these cities that uh, tend to be unused. Uh, just whenever growth is, is slipping, you just 
you know, knock up another apartment tower somewhere uh, mm-hmm. to, to bump up your the numbers in your region. And so that's that's a, a long-standing problem, and I think people have been predicting uh, problems in the in the property market for a long time in in China. Uh, you know, at, at, the, at the moment, I think um, they're obviously concerned about uh, Evergrande Group just because it's such a, a, a large uh, property developer um, and they're trying to shift some of the, the balance sheet to other uh, state-run uh, property developers to try and manage it. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely going to have an impact and I, I think it's impacting confidence and sentiment in, in the property market. Uh, if, if, you're a, you know, if you're thinking of buying a... A, a unit or apartment somewhere, you might be a little bit uh, concerned about what what is going to happen over the next 12 months. And and so we saw yesterday with those Chinese house price numbers, just a very very small month on month dip, but you know the first one in six years, as you said, as you said, and in, in year over year terms, it's also been slowing. So um, you know, obviously Beijing has has levers that it can pull if if things start to to slow down too too far, but um, yeah, you know, at the moment I think they're they're reasonably uh, optimistic that they can manage this uh, latest issue, but uh, you know we'll just have to wait and see. All right, then before we leave China, I've got to ask you uh, policy and all that. Um, there seems to be a lot of speculation that we'll see another cut in reserve in the um, required reserve ratio, and perhaps sooner rather than later. What's your bet on that? And, and do you think there's any chance of a natural cut in interest rates? I think it is more likely they'll uh, go with reserve requirements if, if they want to uh, tweak things. And, yeah, that's that's sort of definitely been the pattern over the last uh, year or so. They haven't moved on on their, on their that loan prime rate for 18 months. Uh, and so I think that's what they would do. But, again, it's, it's, it's interesting that they're just pulling all different other types of levers as well to try and um, you know, change the mix of economic growth and, and meet a, a variety of, of policy objectives. Uh, you know, one of the, the, the big reasons why we've had this slowdown in Chinese growth uh, in the last six months has been what they're doing on, on energy consumption. Right. So, you know, some of it is motivated by, you know, their uh, concerns to, to do what they need to do with emissions and to uh, be seen to be uh, working in, in that front. Uh, another issue is that it's, it's a, a, a result of their sort of trade spat with Australia over the last uh, 12 months or so. You know, they've... Um, told state-owned firms not to buy Australian coal, and now there's coal shortages and energy price increases, and yeah. uh, that's uh, you know curbing many parts of the industrial sector. So th- there's all these um, sort of different policy tools and objectives that are uh, sort of impacting what, what's happening with the with the GDP uh, headline number. Interesting stuff. Okay, we mentioned um, Australia in there, so let's shift uh, across to well, your immediate part of the world. Last Wednesday, we saw another hefty fall in employment in September, but full-time jobs were up a lot. So, I mean, is that reason for expecting a, a decent bounce back, perhaps in fourth quarter GDP? I, I think we should expect that. Uh, there, there should be a, a, a pretty solid bounce, but we're going to definitely get a a pretty weak number for the September quarter, but right. as we know, it's all being driven by um, the lockdowns that we've had in Australia's two most populous states, New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, you know, they were pretty much locked down the whole September quarter. Uh, here in New South Wales, where I am, where um, we've uh, started to come out of lockdown uh, in the last two or three weeks, and in Victoria, that's hopefully going to start happening soon as well. So you would expect, you know, there to be a big bounce back in most uh, key activity indicators. What a lot of pent-up demand. You know, we're obviously coming into the summer here, and 
and the holiday season and people are hoping to, to start traveling around and, and, and do a lot of stuff that they haven't been able to do for the last few months. So, um, yeah, I would expect those numbers to turn around pretty sharply. And that's, that's definitely what the Reserve Bank of Australia has been uh, expecting as well. And in terms of inflation, in the intro, I talked about you know, a lot of central banks seem to be becoming at least a little bit more concerned that inflation will last longer and, and higher than expected. Um, what's the RBA stance now? Is it still very much the case we're quite happy with the way the economy is progressing and, and interest rates are still a long way down the road? Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, they, they've been very consistent uh, and we're again, you know, again saying the same message uh, this month when they left policy rates on hold. Um, you know, they're definitely acknowledging, you know, some of those short-term uh, impacts pushing up uh, the CPI, but, you know, they're still sticking with the with the view that, uh, you know, over the long term, there's just going to be a, a gradual um, uh, increase in inflation over, you know, say a two or three year period uh, once we sort of get through any short-term volatility. So they're still looking pretty comfortable about the inflation network. And in, in fact, what they're saying is that, you know, we, we need um, stronger labour market conditions to start pushing up wage growth to get right. inflation sustainably into our target. So, you know, they're, they're actually um, you know, more concerned about the labour market still and, and, and getting some wage growth into the picture. So there's still no um, shift in their view that policy rates are on hold, you know, for the foreseeable future. They're still, you know, saying to 2024, you know, more than two years away. Yeah. Uh, it might, that, that might change, uh, you know, over time. That's, that's we've still got a long way to go until 2024, but um, there's, there's definitely no indication that they're thinking of moving soon. All right. And I guess compare and contrast with uh, New Zealand, you've had what the third quarter inflation numbers, um, what the uh, highest we've had in 10 years or so. Um, I know that the RBNZ hiked in um, what, October. Um, do you think they'll be inclined to raise rates again at next meeting in November? And indeed, ultimately, we're, we're clearly in a tightening cycle now for the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. How far do you think the you know, the official cash rate will actually go? Yeah, I mean, you would expect them to have the the you know the goal of trying to just get things back to normal. Yeah, uh, you know, they 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 cut rates obviously like everyone did aggressively in the initial uh, aftermath of the pandemic. And uh, I, I think most policymakers are not comfortable having rates uh, at, at these sort of uh, historically low levels and they'd want to just get back to where they were, you know, pre-pandemic eventually. But, uh, um, you know, they're, they're mindful still, I think, of um, uh, of going too quickly, but their, their activity numbers have been pretty strong. So that gives them a little bit more leeway uh, and they haven't had... Um, you know, as big a lockdown uh, or as, as damaging a lockdown as, as we have here in Australia. So um, I think they're just a little bit still more focused on on uh, getting policy back to sort of normal levels more quickly. OK, great stuff. That was my questions. Anything else you want to put in from your side? No, I mean, you know, China obviously is 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 quite interesting um, and also feeds through to the, you know, the big story on on everyone's mind, really, you know, this whole supply chain disruption right. story, um, you know, is something that, you know, has a, has a big Chinese component to it. If you look at the, the market PMI surveys, they, they were talking about supply chain disruptions, you know, four or five months ago. Um, so they were a bit of an early warning signal that this is something that was impacting, um, you know, many parts of the Chinese manufacturing sector. You had COVID outbreaks mm-hmm. in, in some big manufacturing areas and some of the big port uh, port towns in in China. So, if we can uh, 
sort of fix some of those problems in, in China, then that might alleviate uh, this bigger issue of, of supply chain disruptions. That's obviously, uh, you know, the focus right around the right around the world at the moment. OK, great. Excellent. Thanks, Brian. Um, Max, Japan. Start of the month, Japan dropped, um, well, most of its uh, state of emergency for what, the first time for the coronavirus stuff for the first time in about six months or so. So are we now looking for some kind of you know, pick up in fourth quarter GDP? Um, are we talking about the um, uh, October, December? Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. Right. Um, yes. Um, I think uh, by then uh, we'll have enough uh, momentum to see growth uh, picking up a bit. But uh I'm afraid that July, September, uh, still um, the effect of the um, restrictions on economic activity in place. So uh, that would be uh, weaker. Economists have been revising down their forecasts. Um, what probably uh, policymakers and some consumers are concerned about and smaller businesses as well is the uh, there's going to be a debate in Japan about um, Good inflation versus bad inflation. Uh, good inflation. That's got to be a good debate. Sorry. That's got to be a good debate. Sorry, do do continue. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so um, you know, this may not happen so soon, but uh, when the uh, negative um, um, output gap is closed, then um, um, there's going to be uh, an increase, steady increase in uh, the uh, working population, then uh, we'll see a gradual um, a rise in um, uh, growth potential and then see um, gradual um, pickup in inflation. But what we see now is um, uh, producer prices were up 6.3% recently, which is a 13-year high. Coincidentally, the US also had a 13-year high. But then if you take a look at the consumer price uh, index, it's basically flat or negative, but if you see total CPI. So this means um, companies, uh, smaller companies uh, are the majority in Japan, they cannot pass along higher costs. And if you take a look at uh, big companies like Toyota, they can ask their contractors or some contractors to cut prices, but uh, to cut costs. But uh, so um, we may see if the yen continues to depreciate against the US dollar, beyond the current level of 114 towards 115, 120, then uh, there's going to be um, verbal intervention from um, uh, Ministry of Finance and the Bank of Japan. Um, so if I could um, take you all back to uh, 2015, um, the background is uh, Japan raised the uh, sales tax um, uh, in April 2014, and the negative impact lingered on for over a year. Mm -hmm. And the um, at the time, the dollar went up to uh, 125. About the actually um, uh, a 13 year high of 125.86. Then uh, Governor Kuroda, in his uh, first term back then said um, uh, rate hike by the U.S. Fed may not necessarily cause the dollar to appreciate and they end to depreciate and the uh, dollar came back down to 123. And generally, Japanese policymakers see um, dollar in range of 105 to 115 fine, comfortable, maybe in a wider range of 100 to 120. 
But if you take a look at the past uh, public comments, um, if the, the yen continues to uh, depreciate beyond 120, 125, then uh, uh, politicians going to start uh, highlighting the negative impact of uh, the falling purchasing power. And at the same time, um, uh, a stronger yen um, doesn't really kill exports because um, um, a lot of uh, Japanese companies have already um, uh, located the factories uh, all over the world. So we might see a mirror image of um, what what we uh, what they said in uh, back in 2015. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see how these sort of dislocations we have in monetary policies dotted around the world at the moment play out, particularly in terms of exchange rates. Okay, great. Thank you very much for that. And so to Terry. And US, where I guess it's fair to say that recent data have been, what, a best mixed. Next week, we're going to get the first look at the third quarter US GDP numbers. And I've got to say, I see that as of Tuesday, the Atlanta Fed's nowcast call was down at just 0.5%. I mean, does that look reasonable to you? Uh, that seems low to me. Uh, the Atlanta Fed's nowcast is tends not to correlate all that well with the actual advance estimate when it's first released. Uh, the St. Louis Fed actually does a little better with that. Mm -hmm. They're um, substantially higher than Atlanta right now. Um, and by substantially and, higher, you mean? Oh, let me see where my notes say. <laughs> uh, they're they're like over five percent. So uh, substantially, substantially higher, which yeah. kind of makes you wonder how on the earth do you get two such different numbers? Well, it does, but they measure different things. Um, and it also depends on where we are in the data release cycle. Right. Now, like last week, we got a really strong uh, retail sales report compared to expectations. Everyone was expecting the motor vehicle sales component to be significantly lower because we've had drops in unit sales of cars. But what's happening is car prices have gone up and people are having to buy whatever is on the dealer's lots. Right. And frequently this is a more expensive vehicle. So we actually had an increase in the dollar value of motor vehicle sales. Uh, so anyway, um, I think the Atlanta Fed's probably down on the industrial production report, which was quite weak uh, relative to expectations. But if you look behind the down 1.3% in the headline, um, manufacturing was down because of motor vehicle sales and the shortages or more motor vehicle production and the shortages of semiconductors. That was down 0.7%. Uh, but there were also substantial drops in mining, which was a result of a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, which shut down a lot of activity, which okay. will come back in the next month's data. And then utilities output was down because the weather was much cooler in September than August. And there was some slowdown in manufacturing, which also meant that demand for utilities was down. So some of this is just... Going, some of this, I think, is a one-off. So um, I, I think that Atlanta is probably too low on this by far. Um, the other 
thing is that um, people keep harping back to the employment report and the the relatively weak headline there, but the quarter average for the third quarter was 550,000 a month, and this is good gains in the labor market overall. So I think the month-to-month fluctuations are maybe distorting some of the expectations for uh, how the economy is performing right now. I think if you look at somewhere in the midpoint of the two estimates, we're looking at somewhere like three and a half to four percent growth for the third quarter. Okay. Can I ask you about the consumer sector? I mean, you mentioned the retail sales numbers. Um, now, of course, in contrast to Europe, yours, as you, you said, they're in nominal terms. But I mean, if I got my numbers right, real retail sales are only up about, what, 0.3% on the month. And you began the quarter with a really big drop. So um, on my numbers, it looks as if the, the third quarter volume sales are going to be down quite significantly from the second quarter. We had another low reading on the University of Michigan survey. Is there, is there some doubt that perhaps the consumer sector is not going to provide the support to growth that you know, the Fed might be hoping for? Or is that too negative an assumption? I think that's too negative an assumption. Um, from what I can see for from anecdotal evidence, uh, Consumers are out there spending, um, you know, whatever their confidence is. Um, they're buying houses. They need goods for them. Uh, their kids are going back to school, so they need school mm-hmm. supplies, clothing, things like that. Um, so I, I think while the hit on consumer confidence is there, um, it doesn't necessarily translate into actual buying patterns. And some of the things that may be slowing retail spending right now are things like low inventories of goods. Right. Okay. Well, I suppose trying pulling some of that together. Well, a short while ago, you had the Fed Beige Book, which obviously the Fed has a lot of interest in. Um, Did that have anything interesting to say, anything which might change your view of the way the economy is performing, or did it kind of fit in with your sort of central case scenario? I think it fits in with the central case scenario of growth has moderated from the second quarter in the third quarter. Uh, Of the 12 district banks that reported, five had very slight downgrades. And we're talking things like changing the language from moderate growth to modest growth. But all all 12 district banks reported growth. Some of them were quite strong. Uh, And so I think overall, the 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 performance of the economy has been good. Now, it did cite that there was increased uncertainty related to things like the supply chains, the disruptions, uh, the ongoing COVID pandemic. Um, and, and these are, you know, real problems. The other thing it talked a little bit about was um, that inflation seems to be significantly more elevated than it was. And there are not insubstantial price increases going on for manufacturers, but they also seem to be able to pass on a lot of these increases, which is interesting because in past episodes where we had somewhat higher inflation, there were big efforts to, uh, you know, save costs however they could and not pass it on to their customers. But it seems to be happening here, at least to Mm. an extent. 
Uh, and um, the other interesting thing there was uh, apparently at least some districts are not thinking that this is a substantial or, or this is a sustained inflation episode. Now, most people seem to think it's going to last a bit longer than initially expected, but the perception is not universal that this is getting entrenched. That's great, isn't it? Pays your money, takes your choice on this at the moment. Um, Okay, let me ask you, um, listening to us, you want to mention, um, Mr. Biden signed off on the temporary debt limit extension. Um, Has there been any real progress or is it the case that once we get into December, we're just going to face the same kind of negotiations and stonewalling again? Well, the advantage of having it in December is everybody wants to go home for the holidays. So um, I've got to say that is a fairly sad comment, but of course, perfectly plausible. Well, the the fact of the matter is when they're up against a deadline for the end of the session is when they tend to get a little more realistic in their negotiations. Um, I think it will be. I don't think it will be that much easier to get resolved, but I think having a little cooling off period between now and then um, and a chance to talk to their constituents, uh, that it's more likely we will get a better agreement when December rolls around. All right. Let us hope so. Anything else from your side you'd like to put in the pot, Terry? Uh, just mentioned that uh, we've had a lot of Fed policymakers in mm-hmm. the news lately, and it looks like the consensus on the FOMC is 100% toward tapering asset purchases. So the expectation is now pretty firmly in place that we're going to see that at the November FOMC meeting. And just your best guess in terms of what sort of tapering we'll get? Well, um, I mean, they will start to taper both treasuries and the MBS that they've been buying. Uh, it depends on how long they anticipate it going. It's right now, it's about $120 billion a month. They were talking about mid-2022, so we're talking maybe an eight-month eight month period. So if you're going to do a complete taper, we're talking – probably 15 billion per month in cuts. I don't know if they'll actually do it that rapidly, though they may consider that a little too steep and put it off another month or two. Right. Interesting stuff, as always. Thanks for that, Terry. Um, North America, we stay with. Max, if we can go back to you and Canada. Last week, the Bank of, Ca- Bank of Canada governor, Mr. Macklem, said so far, to quote, so far, we're not really seeing evidence of sustained inflation. So today we had um, another very strong September CPI out of Canada. Uh, well, we've got inflation now running headline inflation at its highest rate since February 2003. So um, do you think that we will see further tapering from the Bank of Canada later on this month? Um, and indeed, is it possible that they might actually pull forward uh, what they currently say will be the first interest rate hike in the second half of next year? Um, that's going to be um, very delicate uh, debate, I think. I'm sure they're going to talk about tapering further from um, uh, that was currently at uh, two billion. They they reduced it f- from three billion in July. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but uh, growth and recovery pace is really uneven. Um, the story is the same almost everywhere uh, in Canada too. Um, service sector is picking up slightly um, in the current quarter. Uh, sorry, the last quarter. And um, but then, if you take a look at the manufacturers, uh, they've been hit hard by the uh, global supply chain breakdown and um, also labor shortages. Um, so. Um, as you can remember, the last time the bank uh, announced their policy, uh, they said uh, the economy still needs um, extraordinary monetary policy support. They're talking about probably uh, not going to raise rates until uh, later next year. But uh, I'm not sure if they're going to uh, bring forward the uh, timing of uh, the possible first rate hike uh, from the second half of next year. And they may, though, um, uh, adjust lower the growth forecast from 6% for this year. So um, it, I think labor shortages are serious. Uh, I can see restaurants and uh, some other places reopening gradually, but uh, they cannot find enough people uh, who, could, who, want, who would like to do that kind of job because um, um, I was talking to uh, the owner of a painting company who sends students to, uh, uh, to, to paint people's houses. He said the students would rather uh, take the um, government cash handout than um, go back to, uh, to, to do some part-time work. And that can be the same for um, other people in the workforce. So that's right. really hurting the face-to-face uh, um, -face services uh, industry. Interesting. It seems to be happening in quite a few countries at the moment, doesn't it? Could I ask you about the currency? We're talking about Canadian dollar, 15-week highs against the US at the moment. Has that got any implications for the speed at which they might taper or indeed might ultimately hike interest rates? Because we know that Canadian dollar tends to be quite a sensitive thing as far as the uh, the Bank of Canada is concerned. Um, the Canadian dollar um, uh, throughout this year has been um, fairly strong. Um, in, there, there's a, a, a combination of different factors, but uh, um, I'm not sure if the bank's going to link its uh, policy stand uh, solely or directly to the exchange rate because uh, right. uh, it's hard to fight any tide uh, in the market uh, with a single shot. Too right it is. Okay, excellent. Thanks for that. Um, anything else you want to put in from your side, Max? Um, I don't know if uh, other people on the panel will share the, the, the sentiment, but here um, there's kind of a dichotomy uh, happening. Uh, some shops are really cramming people in, like there's no distance between the tables or people. And But then at the same time, uh, some are really strict unless you bring in your um, digital uh, vaccine passport, you can't even get in. So um, that's going to be confusing, uh, I think, uh, to the consumers and businesses. Um, I wonder if anybody else have any observations in their own countries and regions. 
Well, I think quickly mentioned from my side, there was a, a press statement by the UK government a short while ago. Um, COVID cases in the UK, unfortunately, are spiralling rapidly at the moment to the extent that uh, new infection rates is, well, as high as we've seen since last March time. And indeed, we're close, I think, to almost being the highest in the world at the moment. So there's every chance we may see some additional restrictions being introduced over here. But certainly, it's still the case that with regards to the likes of mask wearing, um, it's kind of down to the individual to, you know, to accept responsibility or otherwise. So there's hardly any areas in the UK now where you'll be forced to wear a mask. A lot of people will do because they've been suggested it's probably not a bad thing to do, but it's not actually uh, not actually law. Um, Terry, what about stateside? It's very much the same situation in terms of uh, a lot of areas are once again heavily encouraging people to use masks and a lot of stores have signs saying please wear a mask most uh, doctor's offices or other medical related businesses require you to wear a mask while you're in them uh, what what i'm seeing is that people who are vaccinated now are anxious to get the booster shots while right. those who don't want to be vaccinated just don't want to be vaccinated and uh, it, it's really a, a very hard divide on on the two issues. Um, but I, as far as mandated mask wearing, um, there hasn't been a lot of movement in that direction. Okay, Bron, what about your part of the world? Well, well, here um, there are still requirements to wear masks uh, indoors in in many places. Though they are starting to to restrict that uh, in in offices. In uh, you know, working in offices, you you'll no longer need masks, uh, but they're still requiring it in sort of shopping centres and uh, in in schools as well for the time being. Though that could change, um, you know, as we sort of uh, get further vaccinated. Uh, and and the other thing that we are seeing is um, you know, having to provide to provide proof of your vaccination status um, for the time being in in some situations, but again, that will likely be uh, eased in in the next few weeks um, as as that coverage of, of the vaccine uh, gets up to pretty high. Okay, so pretty well mixed. I suppose just just quickly from my part of the world, on while we're on this vaccine side, um, I mentioned we are seeing a, a sharp um, sharp increase in uh, the number of new COVID cases in the UK at the moment, and that appears to be attributed to a couple of factors. One, the fact that we're getting to the stage because the UK was very early on in terms of the the vaccination rollout, and it was leading uh, a big chunk of the world for a long time. It does seem now that some of the early immunity which was offered by the vaccine uh, is actually starting to fade a bit now. So Terry was talking about having a, a booster shot, and that's certainly the way UK government's going down the same sort of road. But it's been relatively slow in that. And uh, you know, I suppose without trying to be too negative about this, it does seem that the immunity provided by the vaccines uh, diminishes over time. Um, the good news is that the hospitalizations and the death rate in the UK is still learning. It's still well below where it was during the previous waves, but they are both rising. And certainly as far as the UK policy is concerned, you know, if, you're, if you have COVID, then effectively self-isolate. And the more you get of that, of course, the more it's going to be a hit to UK, ultimately UK supply. There's a time of limited supply. That's simply going to add to you know, would-be inflationary pressure. 
pictures. So I think, although try not to talk too much about COVID on these podcasts, it's been nice to get away from it. Uh, certainly in some parts of the world, it is coming back and it's certainly going to have, I think, you know, potentially important implications for what's going to happen in terms of inflation, ultimately policies and certainly way economies are going to evolve. Right, um, to more general sort of economics in Europe for my bit then, um, I suppose the main focus here currently will be, well, there's a couple of central bank meetings coming up. So really talk about those. The ECB will be meeting next week. No changes expected there in contrast to those central banks who really are getting concerned about inflation, the attitude in general from the European Central Bank currently, and indeed has been for some while now, is inflation is still transitory. We'll probably see an increase in the inflation forecasts when we get their updated set uh, in December, but that's, uh, that won't be until December. But as far as next week's ECB meeting is concerned, it's, it's fairly certain that they won't really do anything, just come and announce no change in any of their main policy levers. In fact, and it's quite interesting just looking at some of the weekly balance sheet data from the ECB in terms of the PEP, so the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme, which was supposed to have been cut uh, since the beginning of October time. The weekly the weekly asset purchases, and it's, it's always dangerous looking at with the weekly numbers because there's a lot of redemptions and volatility and so on. But it would appear that they've hardly cut uh, the asset purchase at all. And that, I guess, would just, well, is a reflection of the fact that they're not happy with the sharp rise we've seen in European bond yields because it's undermining their favourable financing conditions, which they're so keen to achieve or retain. Um, but also, I guess, it, says, it under also underlines the flexibility of the PEP itself, which they've always maintained that, you know, basically, they're going to use the PEP as and when they see fit. So it would uh, kind of fit in with the view that, well, look, interest rates, or I should say long-dated bond yields, are going up very rapidly at the moment. We don't like that, so we're actually prepared to go out and buy more assets than perhaps we would have done otherwise. Um, I should also mention, just in terms of the ECB, there was news today that the Bundesbank chief, uh, Jens Wiedmann, will be stepping down early. He'll be quitting his job as uh, head of the Bundesbank, but also a, a key member of the ECB's governing council. Um, he'll be quitting at the end of this year. Uh, so he will be around for what's widely expected to be the most important or well, one of the most important meetings of the year in December. But he won't be around after that. His replacement will be appointed by the incoming new government, which, although it's not actually determined what shape that's going to take yet, it will certainly be more left to centre, probably headed by the Social Democrats. And to that extent, it could mean we actually end up with the, uh, the his replacement being, let's say, not as hawkish as Beedman um, has been in in the past, certainly Friedman has been widely recognised as being one of the most hawkish members of the ECB. So it could mean that you know, in terms of anyone looking for any kind of tightening out the ECB, uh, the change there might make it even further down the road than generally expected at the moment. Um, potentially more interesting and one which is getting a lot of the talk in the, I guess, the financial press at the moment is what the Bank of England is going to do. They won't be meeting until the first week of November. But on last week's podcast, we suggested that the Bank of England might be the first of the major central banks, at least for G7 central banks, to come out and tighten policy. Well, if we believe what a raft of central bank speakers have been saying over the course of the last week or so, it looks even more likely um, to the extent that financial markets now are effectively discounting an increase in uh, short-term interest rates, what, around about 40 basis points or so between now and the end of the year. So possibly an increase at the next uh, Bank of England meeting on November the 4th and another increase possibly 
um, when we get into the December meeting, the year end one. And that really does seem to be a reflection of the fact that the, the huge increase we've seen in particularly UK energy prices, where gas, uh, the consumption of gas is disproportionately high compared to a lot of continental Europe. Uh, that's really worried the central bankers, and they really do seem to have come out with a, a fund, well, something of a fundamental U-turn on their uh, interpretation of where inflation is going to go. They were very much um, a la ECB in the camp that don't worry about it. The rise in inflation is just going to be temporary. It's going to be transient and we'll get into next year and we'll come back down again. So don't worry about it. Well, now they're very much suggesting that it's going to stay up longer and higher than they originally expected. And they're particularly concerned if that is to be the case, it's going to start de-anchoring um, inflationary expectations, lead to higher wages, the usual kind of cycle, and as a result of which they're going to have to do something about it. Um, it's not guaranteed because at the last meeting in September, the vote on interest rates was a unanimous 9-0 in favour of no change. And indeed, at least two MPC members within the last few days have come out and well, effectively intimated they don't think the conditions are appropriate yet to come out and raise interest rates. Um, but since the governor is really talking that the hawkish line, it kind of looks as if we will see rates going up uh, sooner rather than later, in which case, as I mentioned, that would put the UK ahead of most of the other big central banks. And it's certainly reflected in the pound at the moment, which has had a very good run against the lights of euro to a slightly lesser extent, extent against what has been a strong dollar because of the tapering expectations there. And I guess it kind of leaves, a, you know, it leaves the pound looking a little bit vulnerable because there are still risks on this. In addition to the fact that it's not guaranteed we're going to get five members of a nine, nine person MPC to actually vote in favour of higher interest rates uh, before the end of the year. The economy at the end of the day is still slowing. Most of the indicators suggest that we've got you know, relatively sluggish consumer demand at the moment. Retail sales have fallen in what every month in the last four months. Uh, the labour market's doing OK, but there's still concerns that we could see some weakness there because of the furlough programme, which has been supporting employment wages uh, for such a long time now. That was terminated in September time. And the bank's been intimating for well some considerable while that it wanted to see the impact on the labour market of the withdrawal of fiscal support before doing anything with policy. So I can't help wondering myself if these financial markets haven't got a little bit ahead of themselves. And if we do see any tightening, it's going to be relatively mild. Um, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on because it does mean that the Bank of England's meeting, say in a couple of weeks' time, is going to be one of the more important we've seen coming out of the UK for some considerable while. Um, I'll round off my bit quickly by just mention, mentioning um, some of the politics, and since it's politics, I'll deliberately keep it short. But there is something of a, a verbal punch-up going on at the moment uh, between the European Commission and the likes of Poland and Hungary over, well, effectively national law versus EU law. Um, it's uh, especially true of Poland at the moment, where there's a ding-dong battle going on with the EU Commission as to whether or not it should be the European Court of Justice, which ultimately determines Polish law, or whether it should be the Polish high courts, which have their own national say. Now, it's got to the stage whereby there is increasing speculation that Poland could be the next country following the UK to leave the European Union. Um, it should be said that neither the Polish government nor the EU wants to see Poles exit. 
But essentially, um, if this issue cannot be resolved and it's fundamental to the working of the European Union, then it may be the case that Poland will have to leave in any case. Um, it's not really something which is impacting the markets, particularly currently. But if this thing continues to rumble on, then it's something which could certainly start to undermine investor sentiment in the euro. Okay, then I think that's probably my little bit. So anyone on the team got anything else they'd like to say before we round this off? No, I think that's good. Deathly silence. That's what we like. We means we've done it all. <laughs> Okay, then that is it then. I'm probably sure we've been talking for far too long already. So let's wrap it up there then. What can we say? Well, yes, varying degrees of slowing economic growth and rising inflation may be a central banker's worst nightmare. But for financial markets, the current and prospective dislocations in monetary policies should provide plenty of trading opportunities. So remember to keep up to date with all the latest news on central bank activity, as well as the key market moving data and events in Econoday's global economic calendar. On behalf of Terry, Brian, Max and myself, thanks as ever for listening. The podcast will be back again in a couple of weeks. We hope to see you then. Bye for now.